Hey there, we're those sci-fi guys, and this is at those sci-fi guys show. Just two working dudes, different lives, different jobs, but a whole lot of love for science fiction and the fun that comes with. We are your hosts. I am P.S. McKay, and just like Toby Keith, I too should have been a cowboy. I, are you sure you want to go with that? I, I do. You really sure you want to go with that? I'd love to see you muck out some stalls. <laughs> and who might you be, sir? Uh, I'm a guy who's watched a lot of westerns and I just binge watched Yellowstone. <laughs> and I've done a lot of menial labor in the military. Yeah. I, I may not have mucked out stalls, but I have filled sandbags. I've dug well, trenches. <laughs> I've had friends who burned shit. I didn't burn shit, but I've had a lot of friends who did. Oh boy, interesting. <laughs> that's a that's hello a... bad lungs. Yeah. Well, I bring it up because uh, DT calf. Uh, I bring it up because I'm actually starting tomorrow. I'll be volunteering at the local rodeo, which is like one of the biggest ones on the West Coast, apparently. Like mm. I didn't know that. So. I actually have a Stetson hat, uh, and I'm supposed to be wearing jeans tomorrow. But so I wear jeans all the time. It's hot. It's hot here. <laughs> anyway, so I've never been to this rodeo, and I'm kind of excited for it. It's uh, it's like the the pro circuit kind of thing too. Okay, Chris Ledoux. Cody Johnson. Okay. Start with those two. Then, hmm, what's the other one? Justin, Justin McBride. Chris Ledoux, Cody Johnson, and Justin McBride. Yep. And then any song George Strait does about the rodeo, and because he does some roping and stuff, Garth Brooks song rodeo <laughs> and much too young to feel this damn old which was basically what helped chris ledoux go mainstream <laughs> if you see. are going to go to a rodeo being as non-rodeo as you are oh i'm very non-rodeo non-rodeo as i am i i did go to a college rodeo in when i was in kansas because they have those out there. Yes. <laughs> College rodeo. <laughs> if you've That's never great. seen mutton busting, that is uh, something you get to look forward to. Oh, they, they, they do do that here on uh, Saturday and Sunday in the, in the mornings. So and tell the audience what mutton busting is, my friend. Mutton busting is apparently uh, young children, experienced young children, Trying to uh, ride a sheep or a, a I believe ride and sort. rope a sheep. Ride and rope a sheep. I like there. There's there's ways to capture. Yeah, like they rope them to capture them, and they also ride them in separate events and everything. Basically I only know like this baby versions of yeah. What the I only know this from King of the Hill. So <laughs> propane. Propane and propane accessories. That's a good show, by the way. Um, I was never a huge fan. Oh, it's so great. Um, 
Oh, they've got the county fair for Chris Ledoux. I'm not seeing. Is it the ride? Oh, the ride's a good one. You is need. That, is that? This was one of his last hits before he died. It was a good one. Oh, God. I didn't know this. Oh, he 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 died of like okay. liver cancer or something. Oh, poor oh, his, poor man. His son Ned sounds just like him. Really? Things, yeah. He sings, I think, with a lot of members of his father's band. Huh. He also did a cover of Life Is a Highway. He did. So his that's one of his best songs. The Ride is a great song. Hippies in Calgary is a great song. Um, <laughs> Hooked on an eight-second. Oh, is that is that what the what it is? A lot of his earlier songs were all about the rodeo because Chris Ledoux was a national champion bronc buster. Wow. Well, yep. See, I I hate this. I hate the sound of music playing through the microphone, so I, I don't want to. But this cowboy's hat. Yes. Okay, I'll do that. That might be his best song, or at least one of his most well known. Oh, is this a spoken word? No, there is an intro. Kind of, but the chorus is sung. Huh. Uh oh. Open old blue northern. <laughs> okay, okay, that's pretty epic. That's an epic song. Oh, you the one he does with uh, Charlie Daniels, Caballo Diablo, <laughs> the Devil Horse, Caballo Diablo. Mm-hmm. I'll There's, look uh, that up too. He he does a song with John Bon Jovi, Bang a Drum. Uh, really. Yep, that's a good one. I'll have to look that one up, too. When I Say Forever was uh, one of the songs that my wife and I had at our wedding. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. She is a huge Chris Ledoux fan. Garth Brooks came out and said basically he stole a good chunk of his live shows from the Chris Ledoux live shows. (laughs) Chris Ledoux, who was a world champion rodeo cowboy an actual mm-hmm. recognized world champion rodeo cowboy who would actually sell you know like make tapes and sell them out of the back of his truck you know at rodeos and stuff and, <laughs> nice oh, hey yeah. that's that's smart that's smart Cody johnson is a kid is a kid out of texas who actually I think he did high school rodeo before he got hurt and then got into, well, he had always been musically inclined and one of these guys who's huge on the Texas circuit and one of the biggest rodeos in the entire world is the Houston rodeo. It's probably the most famous rodeo. That's like two weeks long, I think. Well, yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big one. If you get, chosen to perform like be the main act at the houston rodeo that's like a huge deal george nice. Strait has done it well this guy cody johnson got a chance to do it a couple of times he's becoming he's been kicking around for a while and made some really good music but he's and he's kind of an independent artist or at least has been but he's got picked up by a major label and he's one of those guys who's 
not changing his deal. I mean, he does most of his work in Texas and like Oklahoma and shit. Nice. But that's refreshing. They got, oh, his song, Dear Rodeo, is basically about the heartbreak he suffered when he had to quit. And uh, in, in some ways, it's almost like writing like a love letter to like an ex-girlfriend or something like that. It's yeah. it's powerful. I can see that. Yeah, there's a lot I, of great. I definitely see that. There's a lot of great rodeo songs <laughs> by people I'm who sure actually I'll, did the rodeo. I'm sure I'll hear them all uh, at some point. I mean, it's literally no joke. We went to go set up last night for our fundraising area, and. The, I mean, our entire parking lot was covered with, I mean, there are at least 100 women on horseback from about 40, 45 miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, to They're part of this troop. And, I mean, there were 100 horses in our parking lot. I had to just drive and find another place. And, like, all of the, all the campers are set up, you know, next Dude, to their you're horses talking to and a stuff. Cavalryman. Oh, man, it's... I mean, it's no joke. Like I've never seen this before, and it happens every year here. I, I'm I'm kind of pissed that I missed this. Well, that's because you've gotten a little too uh, gotten a little granola on me, man. Oh God damn it! How dare you? <laughs> Jesus Christ! I don't even eat guacamole. God damn! <laughs> I don't. But, you know, it is fun to say. Yeah. No, I do eat guacamole. God damn it! At the Rose Parade, <laughs> almost every year, one of the one of the U.S. Army's mounted color guards is usually part of it. Sometimes oh. it's the Fort Riley <laughs> mounted color guard, and they're all in, you know, uh, cavalry uniforms from like the second half of the nineteenth century. Fort oh, Hood yeah. has one as well. They have a huge detachment, yep. and uh, you can actually go visit them and watch them put on their demonstrations. They're all active duty soldiers. That's and, great. Uh, usually when they have like a big ceremony, they'll sometimes end it with a giant cavalry charge of like 15 to 20 riders and a dude in a chuck wagon. And <laughs> a lot of times when it's a really big event, they coincide with uh, some of the Apache attack helicopters flying overhead. So you kind of get that past and present vibe going. Because it was the helicopters that didn't replace the horse, but became the new cavalry. Hey, was I in helicopters? I don't know. Armored cavalry replaced horse cavalry. Oh, okay. So the thin what what was the we once we once were soldiers is full we of shit. We were soldiers then. were technically air <laughs> well <laughs> They were the, the air the first cavalry division was at one time not an armored division. It was a a what they called air mobile at the time, meaning it was there were a bunch of dudes who would jump in helicopters, fly, and get dropped off. And yes, there in Vietnam, you had your air cavalry, and there's still some air cavalry style units, but that's not, we were the ones who replaced them. Gotcha. Originally. Gotcha. Well, I meant no disrespect. I was just going off of my knowledge of Hollywood movies, which I never should do because it's always just like, just like Back to the Future. On time travel, it's all a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Which reference? Which reference? Time travel. <laughs> By the way, and before we jump into our new topic, 
Did you see the trailer for Thor Love and Thunder? I did. I did. Well, for starters, they're keeping with the classic, you know, rock soundtrack with uh, Sweet Child of Mine. Uh, ACDC, yeah. No. I know, I'm just kidding. Don't be that guy. I am. I'm always that guy. ACDC was on anyway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they would they would never approve their songs to be used anyway so <laughs> they did they used it in like the first two iron man oh god damn it you're right i can't even joke about this shit anymore Boom. Um, oh man it looks fucking badass yeah oh it's so great i, I i'm looking forward to this one more than I thought I would, because I'm wondering how they're going to do this whole Lady Thor thing with Jane, because I got to be honest, Natalie Portman is a fantastic actress. She has not been a great Jane in this in this franchise. Well, she came back because I think they're giving her something substantial to do. Well, I mean, and that's that's the right move on her part, uh, because she's got dignity and I, I respect that. Um, it'll be interesting. I, I I love I love seeing. Oh my god, Twitter just shit all over Chris Pratt again. Oh, why? Like, because he's Christian. Yeah, that's why. So anytime he comes up, the Twitter the Twitter, you know, Twitter trolls come out and say how bad he is. They and, need and, to go back under their bridge. Okay, oh, they really do. But I I loved I loved seeing the Guardians there. I don't I feel like we've been waiting for a Guardians movie since 2017, but I feel like they've been properly represented in in the interim. Yeah, they had a good chunk of uh, <laughs> Infinity War anyway. Good chunk of Infinity War, decent you know decent roles in Endgame. Uh, and uh, I, I love the scene with Thor trying to get Chris Pratt's eye. You know, it's love is the is the family that you're looking at right now, and he's trying to get in his gaze. Like, dude, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Poor Thor. When you think about it, Thor really, <laughs> you know, like everybody who really ever loved they has basically either died or disappeared. Oh, I know. Uh, God, and that'll be interesting because if he can find his love again with Jane, you know, that's bound to make him complete in some fashion, right? Well, even if he's just happy being himself again, you know? I mean, yeah. by the way, don't you love the, the clip of him, like, basically doing battle ropes as Fat <laughs> Thor with a trucker hat that says Strongest Avenger on it? I did. I saw that. I thought you know, that was with, fantastic. Like, giant chains and shit, like... Yeah. <laughs> Fucking crossfitting in outer space. That was so good. Uh, there was everything great about that. Uh, um, he's wearing Ravager clothes. Um, he has think... like 17 different outfits in this. In yeah. This one, two, three minute clip. It looks awesome. I mean, they, they tease his comic book style, like the blue and the red and the pointy helmet. Shit. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking uh, forward to it. And it's Taco only, YTD it's only in has July. crushed it. Well, I'm looking for Doctor Strange coming up here in a few months, too. That's we will discuss all of these. A, a month? That's in a month. Less than that. It's like, what? A couple weeks. May. 
Yeah. Oh my God, it's that soon? Yeah, it's the May 6th. Wow. That wow. week's going to be stacked, dude. Strange oh New God. Worlds and Obi-Wan Kenobi that week. Oh boy, Obi-Wan comes out on Friday too. Double episode too, man. Is it a double episode? Yeah. Because huh. it was like moved from Wednesday or something. It was. There's a theory about that, but I'm not going to discuss it because I don't really know how much of the theory it is. So why did I bring it up? It's a good question, P.S. I don't know. My favorite theory is that they dropped Strange New Worlds on May the 5th. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, funny. <laughs> oh, anyway, <laughs> Strange New Worlds brings us back into Star Trek, which Surprise, surprise, is a topic we're going to discuss today. I know, so, it's... We haven't talked about it in a while. No, no. However, this week, we really do have a big one to discuss. Now, uh, we are not the only ones who said it. In fact, you're starting to see a bit of a renaissance here. We are huge fans of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which... Huge. When it was first on, was kind of the red-headed stepchild. It literally it was stood a on its own watch. for half a season. That's it. It really did only have half a season, and that was season two. Season three, before Voyager launched. Oh, my God, that's right, because it came out... DS9 came out in season six of The Next Generation. Right. January of of 93 and it shared all of season 7 with TNG and then Voyager came out in January 95. Right. So Deep Space Nine literally had half a season where it was the only show in town. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Because Generations dropped in December. (laughs) Forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't really... I don't really, uh, I don't really think that Generations would steal any of DS9's thunder. I I never saw it that way. I never saw the no. movies interfering but, with the TV shows in any fashion. True, but if they were hoping to get out from under the shadow of the next generation, they weren't really able to do it. Well, uh, <laughs> they did a really good job in a in a different way, and which was what we're going to discuss. That's for sure. So, you know, we we kind of discussed this beforehand, and you wanted to talk about the overall gestalt of DS9. I want to bring up some key episodes that I found. Well, I would also bring that interesting. up as well as part of it. But Deep Space Nine, and this is kind of a retrospective, but from us fans who actually, this was the first Star Trek show I actually started watching, for the most part, first run consistently. I had seen some episodes of The Next Generation. It's not that I didn't enjoy it. Just didn't follow it regularly until it was basically going off the air. Right. Then I was able to get on board Deep Space Nine basically at the start of season three. And by season four, I was legit hooked every week. I had to find a way to watch it. Oh, my God. Oh, season three forward. Now, of course, that also led me, much like when I got into Babylon 5 starting in season two, kind of led me to be less interested because there was a substantial shakeup between season 
one and two of Deep Space Nine to season three, kind of like there was a substantial shakeup between seasons one and two of Babylon Five. So yes, yes. But I got legitimately hooked, and I think I kind of underserved some of the earlier seasons of Deep Space Nine until later rewatches. Which, by the way, I was wrong. <laughs> At least about you know. season two, season one. Uh, had some moments, but we've already mentioned that that Star Trek uh, first seasons occasionally have um, rough goes. Yes, and I did. I mean, this was ten years ago. I mean, I was still technically an adult back then. I did start rewatching seasons one and two rather than cherry picking, mm. and yeah. I I was in uh, DS Nine had a lot of intrigue to it that as a as a as a young viewer i didn't i found boring i I just didn't care you know and 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 that was the knock but it was still star trek huh what was the knock on the star wars prequels uh, I, the, I don't understand the political debates the well the know, trade federation the Senate, yada yada the the democracy and yeah I'm, okay technically there's intrigue there and yeah it wasn't but did you do you appreciate that intrigue more now as an adult absolutely now that i understood it and Especially there's one key episode see it with the clone wars which really fleshes out a lot of the stories from those movies Right. And it leads me to think like watching these episodes now and and seeing them with more mature eyes, more yes. seasoned eyes, so to speak. Mm. Um, Barbecue. It, uh, yeah, it's actually lemon pepper rub, but that's OK. Um, <laughs> why do I have to I always have to be different. Um, but seeing it that way. It makes me think that Deep Space Nine was written for a more intelligent and mature audience. I doubt it's subtle about the intelligent. I do think mature you're on with. And maybe I'm not being fair with the, the intelligence part. It, because it when does... you look at there was plenty of episodes of the next generation and the original series, which were very intelligent. I mean, the higher ground. Uh, yeah. Mind. No. Okay. All right. Well. All right. Let's just say this: Star Trek fans, by and large, are more intelligent than Star Wars fans. There, I said it. So. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. They're all they're all smart. Um. But yes, probably more mature is proper the proper term. Yes. Thank you for uh, for clarifying that. Well, I just think it's right because, you know, you can watch some very thought-provoking gen- episodes in the next generation like City on the Edge of Forever or uh, in, in the original series too, City on the Edge of Forever or the, the Inner Light and some of the... Also, I found that boring <laughs> as a child the watching the Inner Light. The only yeah. reason why I liked it was because of the flute song, which I had my own penny whistle and I did everything I could to recreate that song Orally. Yeah, it was very nice. So, do, do you have the, the orchestral version of, of uh, Picard's flute solo? I found it online 20 years ago. No, but 
again, <laughs> I also watched like a five minute version of Zemo dancing. So, well, well, there you go. Um, but I found I found Interlight boring. I understood it. I just didn't get the ramifications of it because you kind of need to see things or experience things before you really understand it. it A 12 year old would not. It's hard to sink in. A 12 year old will appreciate. Oh, wow. That's cool. He lived an entire lifetime in just like 25 minutes. Interesting. Moving on. Still boring. Light is one of the few episodes that they actually re-referenced later in the season too. Yeah. That's right. Hard hooked up with uh, the the scientist. Who what was it? Duets. Shit. No. Uh, I can't even remember. Duets was one of the great episodes of early Deep Space Nine. Oh, never Duets. mind. Yeah. Well, let's bring us back to Deep Space Nine. I mean, okay, there's intelligence in all of Star Trek. Deep Space Nine had a more mature theme talking about Bajor recovering from this horrible was it 90 year occupation or 60 year occupation something like that 60 70 years occupation from the Cardassians who just left them in ruin um and they kind of salted the earth on their way out because you know they literally did (laughs) yeah but, you know, there are episodes that deal with, you know, the formation of the provisional government, which always remained provisional, by the way. I always thought provisional meant temporary. I, I, don't, I think they started stopped referring to it as provisional after a while. It kept going all the way through season six. Maybe. Mm. So at the very least, um, I'm just going to look up provisional real quick. Um, but uh, so you deal with that and then you deal with like the Maquis, which I also found boring as shit. <laughs> when, when you take a relook at the Maquis, uh, particularly in light of some of the more grayer areas that we discuss nowadays as, as adults, you kind of, you there in a lot of ways, I know they've tried to set to get some uh show some signs of sympathy for the maquis right but well i mean the episode where you know wesley becomes the traveler aid journey's end journey's end that's the birth of the maquis right there yeah there was like only two episodes of of the next gen that that touched upon the Maquis and the Deep and Deep Space Nine did a few over the span of the first couple seasons. They did quite a lot. They did quite a lot of Maquis episodes, which and, you know, like it's seasons fine. two and three. Aside from you know a handful and like four and five, it was done because the Dominion right. smoked the dog shit out of them. And of course, <laughs> that was like half the premise was setting up Voyager, right? You could tell after a while they're like ramping up the Maquis. Be so they could do this thing for Voyager, which fell by the wayside after about season two, didn't it? <laughs> barely, uh, barely, I it barely even got past season one. I mean, I'm, I was saying, uh, barely got past like episode two dealing with the Maquis and the crew in Voyager because I always felt that that was an under Served. underrepresented storyline, you know. 
because they were basically enemies of the Federation, but they were cut from the Federation, so you'd find a little bit more resentment between those two crews. Yeah. But I they know. just integrated right away. <laughs> it's like, by the way, provisional Mutual does survival. mean. Yeah, that, that, that does play a factor. Uh, provisional is uh, provided or serving only for the time being. Synonym, temporary. So there you go. Well, which kind of follows along with the fact that maybe just maybe they stayed provisional just long enough to be absorbed into the Federation. <laughs> which was basically the premise of why Benjamin Sisko went to Deep Space Nine in the first place. Helped the Bajorans rebuild with quote-unquote designs of the Federation to annex it once it could stand on its own feet and pass the Federation's laws. Which, I mean, of course, it wasn't really to annex it. That's not what the Federation does. No, but... You know, it was in the interest of helping the Bajorans because they did share a common uh, a common philosophy, not necessarily religion, which I well, think yeah. we determined the and Federation they, is completely secular. And they don't really, they did, both didn't really love the Cardassians either. No. <laughs> Having Bajor join the Federation was definitely would have been a giant middle figure to Cardassia. Mm-hmm. Kind of like having Finland and Sweden join the NATO. Hmm. Weird. But I bring up current politics. So <laughs> I think Finland more than Sweden. Yeah. Well, Sweden's always tried to be neutral, but we're digressing. No, I think um, you get Switzerland. No, Switzerland too, but I'm Sweden as a rule tried to be pretty neutral in the whole. Not so neutral now, are you, Sweden? <laughs> no, I think that they're sitting there going like, I think there was talk of Sweden like wanting to join the Union too, like the Soviet Union. No, the European Union. Sure, why not? <laughs> they're Europeans. In theory, just really high up Europeans. Yeah, if you talk to any of the Europeans, they think they're pretty high up as it is. They all do, yeah. So. <laughs> Love you guys in Europe. Love, yeah, love yeah. Our, our backs are with you. So. <laughs> but, okay, so mature themes, you know, episodes that to a 12 or 13-year-old, I mean, any anyone under 20 would just find a chore to watch, which I, I felt most of season one was a chore. Most of season two was a chore. And then they then they showed the Dominion, and I'm like, game on, baby, because I found the Q episode to be superfluous. I guess it was like considered like the worst Q episode. It really was. I mean, Q did not jive with that that crew oh. at all. Although I think it was pretty fitting that he got punched in the face by Cisco. You've mentioned that he gets punched <laughs> in the face. And he never shows back up on Deep Space Nine again. No. But That's true. If you look at season one, they had Hugh and Vosh show up. They had yeah, the Dura sisters show up. Yeah. Oh, they had Luxana Troy. No, I don't think she showed up until like season three. But oh, they they th three. they threw a few things into Deep Space Nine's early seasons to be like, hey, look, we're a part of the next generation, same universe. It's all, it's all connected, guys. 
Remember Birthright, where Bashir sneaks aboard to use the... The, the Enterprise-D? Yeah. Yeah. Data's dream sequence, and somehow, like, 90% of the crew did not meet any of the Deep Space Nine crew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were walking all over that set. <laughs> the promenade and nothing. <laughs> the site of the Enterprise at Deep Space Nine is a really pretty site. Yes. And also an opportunity to recycle uh, footage taken from the pilot episode of GS9. To save money. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still a pretty shot. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically but, the, the premise of Deep Space Nine was the Federation is trying to help Bajor get back on its feet after the Cardassians finally withdraw. Was it the ever Bajor? stated why the Cardassians withdrew? Basically because Bajor became more trouble than it was worth. And I think they kind of strip mined a lot of the resources. Yeah. And that thought really, really had a, a thing to take it back, though. Well, part of it, too, is I think it kind of started to coincide with the, the peace treaty with the Federation. So mm. I think the Cardassians were like, mm, we're kind of overextended here. <laughs> we really didn't win anything against the Federation because we're kind of outmatched. And the Bajorans are becoming a royal pain in the ass. So let's go back, lick our wounds. Build they just shit. got off of a border war with the Federation. That's my point. Yeah, it's all yeah. this shit. So, so I think the Cardassians had taken that time to do a bit of a reset. But of course, they're meddling in Bajoran affairs for years. Hence yes. the great three-parter to start season two. Yeah, and remind us of what that was. It was like the circle or something, right? Circle. So basically, after a year or so of the Federation being on Deep Space Nine and the wormhole being open and traffic and trade coming through the wormhole, you get some... The Bajorans are trying to get back on their feet. You know, they're still kind of infighting. Uh, obviously there's, there's a, the loss of the Kai earlier in the first season kind of led to a vacuum and a competition mm-hmm. between Wynn and Burial for who was to be the next Kai. And that kind of split some of the populace. Uh, so there's a lot of political intrigue in the religion. There was also the uh, government all things that a 13 year old would love to watch yeah and all political intrigue and religion (laughs) right and the government's always teetering on collapse the federation's trying to prop it up they're like hey here you go yeah replicators yeah but they keep leaving deep space nine to fall apart so that o'brien needs to hold it together with duct tape and his irish luck he does a pretty damn good job of it. I think yeah. it's more luck than duct tape, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so you, get, you get to see... And the characters, of course, are still growing. 
Bashir's really naive and kind of annoying. He was yeah. he was a, very annoying the first season and a half. Yeah. Borderline predatory, really. With Jadzia. Well, he had a little bit of Peter Venkman in him. Uh-huh. Yeah, kind of. I mean, that does not translate well. It didn't translate well in 99. It does not translate well now. Well, but Bashir literally grew very much as a character. He did. So. He did. But anyway, uh, season two starts off with... Oh, and by the way, the Bajorans who worship the prophets, which live in the wormhole, which may or may not have created the wormhole, had sent these tears of the prophets or orbs, which each have... Uh, what are they? Uh, different properties, like the orb of wisdom, the orb of time... Uh, and and people have orb experiences, and some of them can actually do shit for you, and such like that. It's a way to communicate with the prophets, and the Cardassians took most of them. Right. Periodically, the Federation tries to work to kind of help bridge that gap and whatnot, but the Cardassians are still always trying to find ways to undercut Bajor, Kind of make them fall apart, drive the Federation away, so maybe they can go back after a year or two of licking their wounds and saying, hey, we really want this now that they have the fucking wormhole there. <laughs> so season yeah. two starts with Kira finding out rumors that a legendary resistance leader, long thought dead by the name of Lee Nallis, uh, it might be being held on a Cardassian prison camp. And so she basically talks to Cisco, saying if they could bring this guy back, he could possibly help stabilize the government, a hero who everyone on Bajor could rally around. And so Cisco allows her to take a runabout, and her and O'Brien sneak into Cardassian space, and they manage to breach this prison camp and get a get Lee Nollis and a few of these other survivors out. Yeah. Mm. I ver I vaguely remember that. I again I I cherry pick now cuz I don't go through season 2 that often. Except well, for the search. That or the search was season or No, three. it was the was it the Dominion Gem or Hadar. the Jem'Hadar? Yeah. The Jem'Hadar episode. The but, search was season 3, yeah. Right, which was basically it followed up the events of the Jem'Hadar. Yeah. But Season three or season two started off with a bang because for the first time in Star Trek history, they had three consecutive episodes that follow the same plot line. Yeah. So the first I episode basically. That, oh, this is new. <laughs> yeah, the first episode basically revolves around them rescuing Lee, bringing him back, and trying to get him involved. And then you're starting to hear rumors of. Meanwhile, you're starting to hear rumors about an anti-alien, anti-everybody, pro-Bajoran kind of extremist group. They yeah. go by the circle, yep. they attack Quark and, and brand him. There's circle markings showing up all over uh, the station, all over Bajor, and the circle is now starting to grow power. And basically, over the next couple of episodes, Bajor breaks out into a civil war. Cisco tries to coordinate with the Bajoran military, who is 
kind of opted to not take sides at first. Uh, you have Kira being relieved of her post on Deep Space Nine to go back to uh, basically as kind of a punishment for disobeying orders to go rescue Linalis. And she kind of runs afoul of Minister Jaro, played by the great Frank Langella. Oh, yeah. Jesus Christ, you're recalled, man. When you think, well, I mean, I think I watched that three-parter last year. It was was a recent rewatch. It was really good. But when you think about it, they also have Academy Award winner Louise Fletcher playing Kai Wynn, who's really just that much more of an extension of her Academy Award winning role as Nurse Ratchet and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah, very much so. She plays... Oh, so well. She plays. She plays. Ugh, is really. I. I think. She plays. She plays adversaries very well, extremely well. Saccharine like, and falsely sweet. Oh, like she says amazing. one thing, but you know she means another. But if you were naive, you wouldn't be able to tell. Like. Wynn is one of those characters who at times you think maybe she's going to take a turn and do maybe some of the right things, and then she kind of cycles back. She's kind of like Ducat in that way. It's just Yes. They're like, oh, they're just about to make the redemption move. <laughs> <laughs> and then it didn't happen. So he goes right back. Um. Didn't the Federation have to abandon the station at the so order of the, the Bajorans? Basically, yes. The Bajorans gave all non-Bajoran citizens like whatever, 12 hours or something to reach, to, to leave because technically the space station belongs to Bajor. And the military actually turns out that a couple of their highest ranking leaders are members of the Circle. And the Circle is run by this Minister Jaro who's vying to become the first minister. And he's trying to get backing from uh, from Vedic Win, so she, and then that would pave the way for her becoming the next Kai. And then Odo discovers that the Cardassians are selling weapons to the Circle to an intermediary, and mm. Kira and and Dax have to go fly in this old Bajoran like uh, resistance. You know, sub and sub I talked about shuttle. this scene. I talked about this scene about fighters in Star Trek, and we got to yeah. It we, was that was our first fighter. instance of atmospheric atmospheric uh, top gunning, basically. Yeah, where she's like, "There's no targeting sensor." She's like, "Just aim down the nose." Like, <laughs> yeah. What is this World War Two? <laughs> I didn't say that, but. <laughs> Like dogfighting, you know, until World War One. Come on, Johnny, we're going to go fight Jerry. Yeah, <laughs> that's good stuff. But okay, and that you know, and that's that's an ambitious episode for this kind of intrigue. And I remember seeing, and I mentioned it, it, it stuck with me that scene of the the dogfighting, and and whatnot, and. It continued to stay that way with the Maquis a little bit. And then. Yes. And then the Dominion came in with. They were first mentioned in season two. And I talked about this other episode the the other day. 
it was uh, Sanctuary. Mm. Um, really good episode now, but watching it back then, boring as shit. <laughs> but and I went into it already. It was really well thought out. I mean, it, it told both sides of the story of why Bajor should or why Bajor shouldn't accept all these refugees. And they just mentioned that they call themselves the Dominion. And there was like that ominous music that played out before the next scene change. Um, and then we get the Jem'Hadar, which you I go felt... up in the aptly named episode, Jem'Hadar. <laughs> Jem'Hadar, a completely innocuous episode as it starts out with Cisco and Quark with Nog and Jake uh camping in the in the gamma quadrant now for, why were they camping it for, it's like for a science project or something it was like a, something like that but they had to camp they were camping and please with well, federation technology it was glamping we know true uh, they have replicators uh <laughs> this was a great episode because this is where quark calls cisco out on his anti-ferengi bias well let's just call it racism but yeah he doesn't like Ferengis very much. He doesn't respect them. But he knows them. Like, he learned... You know what's interesting? Because it's... You're right. He had an anti-Ferengi bias. He never. He didn't like Ferengis. He tolerated Quark to the nth degree. He uh, manipulated him into staying, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And... But... He goes ahead later on and learns all the rules of acquisition. Now, that goes to show you something. Yes, number one, Cisco is a tactician. And, if you know, if you know, to know your adversary is to know their culture. And that's part of it. But he also learned a good deal of Bajoran scripture. Because remember how uneasy he was earlier in his, in the, in the show about being considered the emissary. And after a while, he kind of started taking a, an active role. As the emissary of yeah, by mid uh, fifth season, he started to to appreciate it, and Starfleet was getting a little weary about it. They're like, not not weary, but leery about it. Yes, like hey, uh, you don't really think you're this, right? Like, <laughs> which you can see from Starfleet's point of view. Oh my God, one of our officers is space Jesus. Da -da. Yeah. Yeah, and and that that could be a problem, you know. I was thinking about that the other day. I mean, there that would be a huge conflict of of interest to have the officer in charge of of Bajor's recovery also be considered a religious icon. Therein lies a lot of the problem that. That Cisco deals with. And that was a very internal thing that he struggled and with that we got to see. not all the Bajorans even thought him as such because otherwise he would have been able to push back against the circle. Right. Which he couldn't. Even the Bajorans struggled for a time with a non-Bajoran being considered the emissary of the prophet. It took them a while and it took Wynn forever um, but oh, and she she eventually accepted it and resented him for it even more. 
I know. It was so good. <laughs> she was so good as a spiteful person. Like she and accepted it. Sweet smile. <laughs> but how, she hated him even more. <laughs> and how much Kira wanted to just punch her in the face every time she saw her. Oh, God. There's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than someone you know hates you. Looks at you with a sardonically sweet smile. The saccharine just is dripping off of them as they tell you all these wonderful things. Like, I do so hope that you have a wonderful day. And you're sitting there going, stop patronizing me. We want to kill each other in the streets. I know it. Yeah, it was um, fascinating. You know, uh, the Circle episode, you got to see some really good politics. You see, you see people uh, respecting each other's, the the Bajoran general, General Krim, who played by Stephen Mocht, who was one of the people who was considered for the role of Jean-Luc Picard, by the way. Oh, good. Interesting. So, yeah, so he... Um, he had a pretty meaty role, I think, in the second and third episodes. Um, where first, the the second episode, you're not really sure which way the Bajoran militia is going to go. And then la- later you find out, oh, there's a lot of them that are just with the circle here. <laughs> yeah. you know, Kira gets captured and beat up and then they got to rescue her. And, you know, when they find out the truth, they, they try to race to the capital that's why they're in that little snub fighter to bring the information to the capital, and then you that the circle is funded and gu- and and gunned by uh, the Cardassians. The, the Cardassians, and, and you therefore... get Dax and Kira having to be snuck into the capital in Vedic garb, and you've got a, and she's a true, uh-huh. but they gave her like a little prosthetic, you know, uh-huh. that she could fit in, and yeah. And by the way, season two. And three is where you start seeing the more roguish Dax. In the first season or so, she was really very much like a, not a Spock, but she was a little bit less She was very by the book. Yes, very buttoned up. That very tall, prim posture, usually with her hand behind her back. Um, Yeah, she really was. You're right. I didn't think about that. But then she became fun-loving and and enjoy life. and, and. Especially with Worf, <laughs> teaching Worf how to enjoy life, you know. <laughs> yeah, and so you get to, and that was that was definitely a, an a, a, an arc that really said we're here to stay and we're doing shit different. You yeah. know, Cisco and company, they are hiding in the, you know, the the a handful of the Starfleet are hiding in the. Uh, crawl ways to hold off the circle long enough for the message to reach the capital so they can stop the civil war before the Cardassians come back. And yeah, they managed I do need to, to watch this. Yeah. So I would enjoy this a whole lot more at this oh, age. It's such a good, it's such a good arm. I absolutely and would. And it's early. There's no defiant. There's no dominion. It's all oh. just like the original concept, right? Yep. But then it starts to branch out because then we start talking about the Maquis who start coming in, which yep. are Federation citizens who got handed over to the Cardassians. And there were Cardassians that got handed over to the Federation because they're like 
moving around planets and shit, and they're creating a demilitarized zone, and everybody's not happy. And yeah. then, then the Cardassians start arming their. I guess basically the Maquis form because the Cardassians start arming their colonists in the demilitarized zone who are attacking the Federation colonists in the demilitarized zone. But Starfleet's mm-hmm. not there, to, and they're not doing anything about it, which is why they're now pissed at the Federation. So right, even though it was clearly stated, you're leaving the Federation. Your calls will largely go, according to Picard. Your your calls will go largely unanswered. Mm-hmm. Like, and by the way, I you got to you got to think about the subtext here about the status of the Native Americans. Oh, they're so all dead. Ham-fisted. They're oh, dead. They're all dead. Man. They're all dead. They'd have to be. They'd have to. They're so we're talking about an entirely extinct culture from Earth. No, no one said all Native Americans were on that moon. Uh, my impression, I know there's like millions, not millions of tribes. My God, how insensitive is that? No, there are, there are so many different tribes and different cultures associated with it. The implication was a large contingent of the Native American population chose to go to this area uh, for... <sighs> sanctuary so to speak you know well we will see no we won't (laughs) we're not gonna see (laughs) how do you know we're not Uh, they don't want to talk about it again it's they're they're not going to be able to write this well to 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 you know give it justice no 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 i'm just saying any kind of like, because how many times did Chakotay talk about his quote people, and you're like, oh god, this is cringe-inducing. Why is it cringe-inducing? Because he's a because he's a a human, or I mean, because I mean, <laughs> your name is honored amongst my people. That sounds pretty warf-like to me. You know. Ye- my yeah, people but... do this. My people do that. You, when you have well-written main characters or even supporting characters of alien races where they actually try to develop the race through them, like Nog and Quark and Rom. And, There's, you know. there, you're, you're right. Odo, is... Odo is a very my people kind of guy, even when he's mostly talking negative about them. Yes, and I, I, will, I will draw the difference at Chakotay because... There's a difference when you're creating an alien culture, there, but there's an entirely other difference when you're using a, a culture that already exists that is technically, oh God, how do I word this? Technically not the writer's own, and they're using it for their, for their own, uh, wow, simplistically saying profit. Uh, in this story. Yeah, it was a little appropriated. We know. Uh, and it's not, and it wasn't done well either. And I'm talking about Voyager. I'm not talking, my God, if the Voyager people couldn't do it well, holy hell, the current writers wouldn't be able to do it either. But, and there we go. <laughs> there it is. There's my weekly, there's my weekly dig. Um, All right. So, so here's a question for you. Okay. Do you believe that Deep Space Nine 
paved the way for the serialized and dark and gritty storytelling we get with some of these more recent Trek and other sci-fi type shows. Um, it did in a, in a way. It, it did. I, it wasn't the purpose of that. Because that's just kind of the direction that sci-fi was going. And I remember reading interviews with Rick Berman after Star Trek Insurrection. And they were talking about how they needed to go dark. Like, that's the way to go. It needs to be dark. We need to enjoy the darkness. Take, stay, take Star Trek into a new direction. And Rick Berman, Brent Spiner, for some reason, was a co-writer on, on Nemesis. I don't know why, <laughs> but that was really the departure right there where they went to the TNG crew and said, we're going for grimdark and nemesis happened. And <laughs> there wasn't another Star Trek movie for seven years. Well, I mean, they did bring in vampires. You're absolutely right. <laughs> the, the, it was pretty interesting how they were able to get Ron Perlman so skinny. And how much makeup did he really have on? How much of it was really? <laughs> oh, come on. Let's not you don't need that much makeup on Ron Perlman. <laughs> well, obviously, after Hellboy, we knew we could wear a shit ton of makeup. <laughs> So, but, uh, no, I mean, you, yeah, that was the direction that was the, the springboard for it, but I don't think that deep space nine and its style was the inspiration for the current, uh, the current motif of present day's Trek. Well, it definitely showed that you could do that. I'd say deep space nine was the darkest of the Berman era Treks. Um, you had a whole war. You saw millions of Federation citizens killed. Almost the entire Cardassian race destroyed. Yeah, you'd see <clears throat> Enterprise Season 3 was really dark, particularly in the second half of the season. That was a post-9-11 despair. I think that that was... It was. It, it was... That, uh, that was... But even the only way they during could take the it. year of hell and some of the Borg stuff got pretty dark, too. Equinox True. was very dark. Yeah, no, it was. But 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 those were just incidents in time. If you're saying that D Space Nine was dark all the time, it wasn't dark all the time either. No, because it, it had some great light no. episodes. Trials and Tribulations was a great. Right. Not only was it fun and and entertaining well pretty well written and and done episode two but it was pretty light even with the whole murder plot it was still pretty light uh, there was a little, bomb in a triple that they, they put exploded a bomb in a triple they exploded a triple <laughs> little green men that was little green men was silly. good too uh, uh take me out to hollow suite the going back to little green men how much better would the general have been if he was played by Brian Dennehy? Well, he was played by Charles Napier, who was one of the <laughs> I, space hippies in the... Uh, I know, I know. And, and nothing, 
Charles Napier has been playing is is an absolutely great was an absolutely uh, great character actor who did a few Star Trek roles. Yeah, he wasn't he the general in um, Austin Powers. Yeah, he was one. <laughs> I, he was. I think he might have been in in the A Team at one point. Oh yeah, he was one of the goods chasing the A Team for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm, so I'm not taking anything away from him and his performance on Little Green Men. No. I just I I would. How much? How much would you have wanted to see Brian Denny, the great Brian Dennehy, in that role though? Well, he would have been a great dick because he does a pretty good job of oh, that. He's so good at it. Um, so but, good. You no, know, you could have had any other real heavy do it, too. That's I true, mean. too. It's true. I just it, Brian Dennehy came to mind, and I'm like, oh, that's a that would have been a good get. Yeah, of course it would have. I mean, Star Trek has gotten some decent heavies over the years. So, I wanted to bring up an episode that I rewatched last night mm. of Deep Space Nine. Ah, uh, yes. And I was watching it, and it was one of those episodes that when I was 16, it was boring as shit. <laughs> it was, uh, I just, I sat there and I watched it because I had to watch it because it was Star Trek and that's what I did, right? But I'm like, oh, great. Nothing's going to happen with Dominion here. This is, uh, oh, my God. All right, I'll deal with it. It's season five, episode 12, The Begotten. Do you know which oh, one that is? That's the one where Odo finds the changeling. Yeah, the baby the changeling. changeling. Well, and folks, at this time, Odo has had his, cha- his shape-shifting powers taken away from him. Right. Not so sure Odo's technically this. human. I, I'm not sure how they did that, but they did. Mm, they did. So space reasons <laughs> exactly so and there's more space reasons that come later in the episode and it's also the episode of of keiko not um, well keiko and miles having their their baby boy birthed right. by kira who was conveniently <laughs> impregnated by dr bashir in real life yes yeah. <laughs> so it's it's an interesting episode. I'll I'll, I'll go with I'm going to go with the more uh, interesting part where Odo find finds the changeling and he decides that he's going to do something very different than how he was introduced into the world. Mm-hmm. He was going to have a more caring nature, a more positive nature, teaching the, the changeling what it felt to be in different shapes by using outside influences like vases and stuff and. He wasn't getting very much response. And, you know, finally, much to his chagrin, it's not Shakar, it's uh, Dr. Dr. Mora. Dr. Mora, played by James Sloyan, who is, you know, a a fantastic actor in his own right, uh, shows up and he was the doctor. One of the, has done probably a half a dozen Star Trek roles. Yeah, absolutely. And he's a doctor that basically nurtured Odo to to become who he was. He taught Odo how to take form. He was able to communicate to Odo for the first time. And he's the Odo, person Odo modeled his appearance. He modeled after. his hair. He models his appearance generally after him. And Odo hated the man. 
because he felt uh, he 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 felt that the methodology was completely unnecessary and most of it was torture. And, and you know, at one point, Odo says, "All right, I'm done with you. I'm leaving. I'm going to go find my own way in life." And he went ahead and worked with the Cardassians on Terok Nor. I don't know what he did before, uh, but. And became head of security there, and then stayed with the Bajoran, uh, with the Bajorans when the Cardassians left. And we have Odo today. So, but you have this give and take of like this scientist wanting to use his old methodologies, and Odo saying, "Don't do that. I hated that when you did that. It was horribly uncomfortable." And Doctor Moore is like, "Well, here's the problem." If you spare the rod and spoil the child, how is it going to know how to make a cylindrical shape if we don't put electrical fields around it to teach it? Oh, it has to do this to get out of its, uh, you know, discomfort. Yeah, right? I know. And you see Odo's point, too. And you, do. you can see where this forms some of Odo's personality, some of his standoffishness. Oh, absolutely. Frustration. Of course, he is an outsider. And with Dr. Mora, it's almost like a um, an analogy for being a brand new parent where you're not really sure you know what you're doing. <laughs> you're trying, right. but you don't and now know. He, and now he's the grandparent. And, and we learn from Dr. Mora that he's genuinely hurt by, by I almost said Quark, by Odo's uh, resentment. He's genuinely hurt by this. And... Odo, for the first time, sees this, but he's still like, I'm right. I know that I'm right with these feelings. You shouldn't have done this. And then Dr. Mora actually gives some good advice on, like, changing the temperature to a certain degree, lowering the light levels to a certain level, because that'll optimize the the the, the viscosity of the, of the changeling's fluid, so that it'll have more chances to take shape and everything. And them working together allows the baby changeling to actually take shape and reach out to them and almost make a face. And they have a real moment together where it's Dr. Mora as this uh, misunderstood father and Odo as this angry son. They just couldn't talk to each other. And they figured out how to talk to each other at that point. Boy, it sounds familiar. Like I almost watched this last week to a degree. Did you? Did you see last week's episode of Picard? Uh, no. <laughs> you need to. It's got Gaius Baltar, dude. Oh, I started watching half of it. I I, I stopped halfway. I had to do something. It was so the first but... half. It it feels a little slow, but then it all kind of makes sense at the end. Right. But you've got but... Gaius Baltar dressed basically like Julian Bashir because you know it's probably because so many people got him. And uh, Alexander Siddig confused for years. They do have a certain resemblance, and their English accent does not help. The facial structure, I think, it's, is it's, very similar. It's the, it's the chin structure and the nose structure. Yes. That's about it. Um, Completely different ethnicities, but still. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, you can still... I was introduced, let's see, in high school, there was a friend of mine who said, I looked just like a Korean star. Uh, in a movie she was watching. I'm like, get the hell out of here. She brought the movie in, showed me the movie. God damn, if I didn't look just like that guy or that guy didn't look just like me, I was shocked. I was shocked. 
And she was Korean, by the way, so she could make that comparison. I get so. you. I get you. <laughs> anyway, the the whole half, first half of the movie, I'm feeling for Dr. Mora for the first time. I'm like, wait, I thought he was an asshole. But here he is. He's just this guy that's just trying to help Odo. And Odo's just rejecting him at every turn. Well, when you only hear Odo's side of the story, you don't quite understand. And, and of course, right. he didn't really know what he was doing. And there was some discussion as to whether or not they even thought Odo was sentient. Yeah, exactly. And, and Dr. Mora felt otherwise and proved it, proved that he was sentient and, and stuck up for him and made him yes, the man after was. a point. But I think they even determined that he, they, he didn't even think it, he was sentient at first. Yeah, no, it, it was when it was the stimuli that he was. Well, it's the responsives that Odo get. Anyway, you're right. Anyway, at the end, the changeling starts to die after after they had this big breakthrough moment and this big father son moment. And Odo feels like a parent. Radiation, I believe it was it was residual radiation <laughs> that hadn't taken hold yet. The damage hadn't taken hold yet. It was still manifesting. Um, which could play a part in why the changeling was so slow to learn, too, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but that that's neither here nor there. Anyway, the changeling's dying. Odo's frantic, and Bashir and Dr. Mora are trying to help, and Mora says, Odo, I need you to leave. I promise you I will do everything I can to help this little one. And I sat there, and I'm like, oh. And Odo didn't fight him. Odo listened and walked out and, and waited to uh, until the bad news came. And it comes back in. Dr. Morris says, we did everything we could. Uh, and I, I'm so sorry, Odo. And he's genuinely sorry. And lo and behold, he hold, Odo holds the changeling. And the changeling, who knows Odo, absorbs himself into Odo's body, changing him back to a changeling. So... I found that to be a wonderful, a wonderful moment where they shared a tragedy together. Mora and Odo did. Yeah. And they shared this rebirth together, too. I mean, it, 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 deeply, it was they, they had this deep sense of loss that was not just their relationship, but the loss of the changeling. The changeling represented the loss of their relationship and the changeling. And them re-understanding each other was a form of rebirth, just like the changeling being absorbed into Odo and Odo having his rebirth back into his his uh, uh, liquid form. Like. The episode was completely about birth and and reformation. Uh, and, and lo and behold, the O'Briens have their baby, too. So yeah. <laughs> but it was a boring as shit episode at 16. But I moved by it the other day. Yeah. I, by the I, way, it's with your your air better? jack or something, because it's it's giving a static sound when you move it. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to. I accidentally hit it. Sorry. Oh, oh no worries. Old technology, my friends. <laughs> I, I, I do find it, it. I have watched that one, and it, it's a tough one. It has some similarities to The Offspring, where Data has, you know, creates their own child. And, you know, Starfleet's arguing whether or not 
it's Starfleet property again, that whole thing. And then, you know, later when Lal starts to malfunction, the Admiral kind of pulls his head out of his ass and he and Data both work to try to save Lal. And, you know, again, the Admiral comes out and is like, you know, we did everything we could. We tried everything. So... Uh, it was one of those moments. Uh, so you're saying you're saying the begotten is basically a recycling of the offspring. No, I don't. <laughs> because there's there's a lot of different character development for for both different guys, but there's some similarities. I don't think it's you know an egregious ripoff. Um, the the offspring is basically a sequel to the measure of a man and right. um, begotten is somewhat of a sequel to Odo's it's part of Odo's arc with his people. You know, he's the only one who ever killed another and then he had passed judgment by them. It was, it was a bit more fitting, I think. Um, that, that kind of fell with it. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I just feel, I feel that was one of the more, I mean, there's so many impressive episodes that DS9 has to, you know, has to display and you can never really pick one best one. It's That's just, true. Uh, I, I found it to be a completely charming episode that I never appreciated before. Yeah, so. I agree. It's uh there's a lot that comes out of this, you know? You get this you get this feeling of of depth of the character. They really tug at your heartstrings. Well, you care about them already. Because you've been through a lot with them as it is. And you saw Odo deal with losing his abilities. And yeah, I mean, there's that depth. The You add just a little bit more depth and, you're, and you become that much more attached. Well, yeah, I mean, we've discussed past tense before. Yep. Um, very in-depth and frankly, little too close to reality kind of thing, which is why... Ugh. It was even easier for Picard to show 2024. It's kind of like a bit of a hybrid between what they showed in past tense and what we're dealing with right now. I'm pretty, I can guarantee you. Two years in the future. I can guarantee you that Picard didn't have to spend one cent on any of those homeless set pieces at all. They just set up shop and run, ran and gunned, or they run and gun the shot. (laughs) Perhaps. So, I don't know how it is in Boston, but the homeless problem is horrible out here. Well, it's just colder, man. I mean, the homeless yeah. have to go find places to hide at times. <laughs> no, I'm serious. They have, to, they have to find places to seek warmth. Well, yeah, it's a latter, matter of life and death. Oh, yeah. And so. Go, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was kind of the a good chunk of the point of past tense, which is going back to earth 20, 
24 or whatever was not something that you were really expecting out of Deep Space Nine. No, it was a kind of a, a left field episode that they decided to bit. do. So, um, did did you want to talk about uh, Inferno's Light or what's it called? Oh, Inferno's Light. Oh, the two parter. Yeah, the two parter that Inferno's Light. It's and hard Purgatory to Shadow. In Purgatory Shadow and by by Inferno's Light. Yeah. Well, or not, you one, don't have to. No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> and I was just pulling some stuff. To, I actually watched it the other day. Actually, I watched By Inferno's Light the other day, too. Yeah, uh, I, I watched them, I want to say Sunday night, I watched them together. Uh, after I'd watched In the Pale Moonlight on Friday night. Yep. It was, this is where they really ratcheted up the Dominion, because season four, Four kind of brought the the, car, the, Klingons, the Klingons were back all around to the front as yeah. they started fighting with the Cardassians and occasionally with the Federation. The peace treaty was over with them, and but there was always the Dominion. Dominion popped up and in par- in Paradise Lost and whatnot, fucking around with Earth and turning you know making Earth go a little crazy, a little can, little fascistic. Yeah, a little fascist. And then uh, you get back to season five where things are starting to spread out a little bit more. You're getting a little bit more vibe. You know, you get the Klingons, but you get the Dominion. You're finding out the, oh, we're finding all sorts of fascinating things about the crew. Mm-hmm. You know, Worf comes on in season four, which a lot of people thought was to boost ratings, and it was, but... Worf actually fit in very well in Deep Space Nine and allowed him to really grow as a character. We've discussed, yep. It really did serve the character of Worf very well. Oh, yeah. Um, But by Inferno's Light, which was the first one? The uh, uh, Purgatory Shadow. In Purgatory Shadow, so... It goes back to the season uh, to two years before, really, where the uh, where the Cardassian Obsidian, Obsidian Order and the Romulan Tal Shiar put together a fleet of like thirty ships, and they go into the wormhole to basically wipe out the founders. Turns out the founders have someone in the Tal Shiar, and they all get slaughtered. Right, Odo and Garrick are there, and then they have to be rescued by the Defiant, and Yada, yada, yada. Two years later, Garrick gets a message from his old boss, Anabrantain, the head of the Obsidian Order, the man who exiled him to Deep Space Nine, where we basically, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a few episodes where we basically throw out this whole fucking Taylor bullshit, and he's like, yeah, I was a spy, I was an assassin, <laughs> you name it, I did it. And you, and you get some really great character development with both Garrick and Worf in this one. You also get... Ducat. This was a great showcase for supporting characters plus Worf. That's really about it. You know? Yeah. You get a little bit of Cisco's real rivalry with Ducat kind of ramping up. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But it gets nuts. So Worf 
and well, Bashir too. Bashir gets a lot of stuff in this two-parter. But uh, Worf and Garrick go into the Gamma Quadrant to see if they can find Tane and see if there's any survivors because Bajor had a colony that was wiped out by the Dominion. Federation starships had disappeared. You know, trading ships, uh, you know, exploration ships, all these, you know, different Alpha Quadrant ships that have gone in to explore, to, to you know, uh, do commerce and whatnot have all either been outwardly destroyed or disappeared. So they find and they're captured by the Dominion and they go to a prison camp. On an asteroid. On an asteroid. And at there, there they find General Martok, the command, <laughs> a high-ranking <laughs> who was killed, general. Who, who we saw killed at the beginning of season Five. Five, yes. Who had led Earlier the attack season. on Deep Space Nine in season four. Turns out that whole time that was a changeling, which they showed when they uncovered the changeling at the beginning of season five. Yes. But they find the real Martok, who has then since been there for two years, had been beaten, lost an eye. And by the way, bringing back J.G. Hertzler, huge win for the series. Smart move. Oh, yeah, he Smart was great. Move. He was great. And this version of Martok is even better. Um, so they find General Martok, they find some Romulan and some Cardassian, some Breen, some all sorts of other races in there. But they find Tane alive, but he's dying. And basically he wants Garrick to take out revenge on the Dominion for him. And he also <laughs> wants him to escape. And one of the things you learn is that finally you learn that one of the reasons why Tane was so anything Garrick would do that was wrong was like seen as betrayal was because Tane, Garrick was Tane's secret child. And so there was a lot of pressure with being the head of the Obsidian Order's child. It's kind of like being the son of the uh, director of ISIS. Isn't that right? Sterling Archer. <laughs> So, mother, <laughs> uh, I don't have any ice in my glass to. Damn it, like... Archer. <laughs> Damn it, Archer. <laughs> so, basically, you get to, and, and then they find out that, uh oh, who, who gets thrown into the room but Julian Bashir? They're like, what? And there's a Bashir just walking around Deep Space Nine. Yep. And when they show, because they, at this point in, this, in the series, They'd swapped over to the first contact style uniforms only about two, three, like the month before this. They'd only been maybe a half a dozen episodes in the new first contact style uniforms. Yeah. But Bashir shows up in the jumpsuit uh, uniform. And you're like, hmm, black and blue. Yeah. How how long ago was he? Does he even know who Worf is? I mean, how long is he even there? <laughs> Turns out he's only been gone for about a month and a half or so. Yeah, like six weeks he'd been gone for. Yeah. He was away at a conference and yep. went to bed and woke up in a cell. Yep. That's how it <laughs> happens. Artark was tar was uh was hunting and got zapped and such. Yep. So I I thought that that was exceedingly well done having Bashir be replaced by a changeling like that, which uh, by the way, completely in a Celtic mythology completely like which you know my son 
I, he heard changelings in DS9. He's like, changelings? You mean the ones that steal babies and replace them with their with their own kind? Like, very close, very close. And that's what we saw with Bashir. Yeah, except not in ba- the baby part. But um, wow. but it was a bold move because, by the way... It's a Bashir, bold move, Cotton. The, Let's see if the, it pays off for him. If you remember... The changeling Bashir had to have extensive medical knowledge because he had to do, was it, it was too early in the pregnancy, I think, but he had to do a massive medical procedure, maybe in the the darkness of, what was it? It was a massive medical procedure that he had to do as a changeling. Maybe. It was. It absolutely happened, and I wish I could recall it better, but it's mentioned in the trivia part of Purgatory Shadow or or Inferno. Like, oh, maybe I should just look up the trivia part then. Um, well, I mean, that is fascinating, and you're right. Um, you, I mean, these shapeshifters, they're like long-term undercover operatives. They have to learn about their targets. They have to learn skills to be able to accurately replace them. So, anyway, that was a great twist. They kind of basically end up with that. They're like, oh shit, Bashir's here. And of course, when an entire Divinion fleet comes through the wormhole, and of course, Cisco's got the Defiant, the, you know, three runabouts and a, and, you know, the station plus. Gul Dukat and his captured Cleon Bird of Prey. That's stuff that's going to take too long to get into, folks. But, you know, they're, they think they're going to have to fight the first battle against the Dominion. And the Dominion just left turns and heads to Cardassia. And Gul Dukat <laughs> basically tells everybody, fuck you, dudes. I just yeah. sold the Cardassia to the Dominion. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> they wanted a foothold. They got a foothold. And that was Fish a hell of a Cardassia. twist, by the way. Uh, that, that, those two episodes, again. He was wearing all that red, of it. The, oh, he was wearing the, uh, the, the, the red <laughs> Maca hat. <laughs> Make Maca. I like it. M-A-C-A. Um, well, it's really M-C-A. Make Cardassia great again or whatever. Yeah, or, yeah, M-C. Yeah, okay. Well, needless to say, he he he, he, he built back better, apparently. There we are. <laughs> there you go. Both sides of the aisle. So... Um, so he so, sells them out, and then they all of a sudden they start kicking the shit out of the Klingons and the Maquis, and everybody's been giving the Cardassians trouble. This kicked is all, all kicked all the Klingons out of out of Cardassian space too, by the way. Yeah, in that in that second episode by Inferno's light. Yeah, gone. Just yep. like all, and they they had to seek refuge at Deep Space Nine. Right, <laughs> where Cisco ever the. Uh, you know, the uh, foreign diplomat, the full-fledged ambassador, gets Gowron to re-sign the Kittimer Accords. Boom. Under stick. duress, by the way. <laughs> it wasn't really under duress. It was just making a strong You point. want some help? There's a way you can help us. Here's the signature, Pat. <laughs> Basically, it was pulling, helping pull Gowron's head out of his fourth point of contact, if you know oh, what I that mean. that is true. Yes. Oh, but he... If you watch that scene where they sign the pad, watch very closely as Avery Brooks does the eye open at Gowron. Oh, really? Uh-huh. I noticed that when I was watching. I'm like, 
Oh, did he just it. do the eye thing? I think he did the eye thing. I'll have right to look way. it up. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Just Where FYI. He's all bug eyed when he's trying to pinpoint something. This we do not forgive or forget. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And in um, that Klingon makeup, it was even better, too. It was oh, so good. So great. <laughs> and he even got more and more. He got more to do in Deep Space. Oh. You got more and more out there. It was great. <laughs> uh, the Rapture. The episode of The Rapture where... Oh, by the uh, way, Cisco these is episodes is basically what sets... That's like the major tipping point that puts the series on a crash course for the Dominion War that will come at the end of the season. These are the big turning point episodes, yeah. yeah. Um, that so was the a Rapture, major linchpin. And Rapture... That was the first episode in the new uniform, I believe. Yes. Was that the one where he had the visions? That was when the change... That that means that the changeling infiltrator performed brain surgery on Cisco to rid him of his emissary visions, which potentially were harmful to the founders in Rapture, and understandably tried to save the life of the sick infant changeling in the Begotten, and witnessed Odo regaining his shape-shifting abilities... So actually, yeah. So Odo was being helped by a ch- uh, a changeling of uh, uh, Bashir. I forgot about ah, that in the Begotten. No, changelings don't harm another. So no. it would have had to, based on their code, it would have had to at least try to help the changeling baby. Right. And they did all they could. And it's interesting that there was a changeling to witness Odo changing back. So, I guess the question is, how did Odo not know that Bashir was a changeling? Well, he wasn't a changeling by that point. He did change into one at the end of that episode. Yeah, well, I bet you, I bet you Bashir wasn't exactly shaking Odo's hand anytime soon. <laughs> oh, no, that's a good point. Sorry, just had a surgery. <laughs> Gotta go wash up. It's a bit nutsy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll do the, the nod that you like to do, Odo. Mm. Yeah, well, grunt. not up to the left. Oh. Or... Yes, the, the grunt that Odo's <laughs> likes to do. Oh. Oh. Hats off to Renee <laughs> Abergenois. Oh, he was so good. Um, we're coming up on two hours, man. We're I really think, only coming we up on about an a... hour and 20 or so in this episode, though. Yeah, but I think we need to turn this into a two-parter. What do you think? I am... Um, on board with this because this gives me another <laughs> excuse to watch more Deep Space Nine. Oh, that's all we need is another excuse, right? <laughs> like I need an excuse. Oh, um, I pooped today. I guess I get to watch Deep Space Nine. There you go. Oh my god. <laughs> I could watch Deep Space Nine every day if I wanted. To. <laughs> this show, it, it is just so good, and the characters are so rich. I mean, just look at Cisco. Go, how much more badass Cisco just got when he shaved his head. Yes, and, he got a star ship like... in season three. He looked. He got way more badass when he got to shave his head, have the goatee, which he wanted at the beginning anyway. He yeah, went. Yeah, he should have had that at the beginning. By the he way, he went full hawk from yeah the eighty Spencer for hire cop show. How how stupid. Was it that the producers were like, no, that's too not antagonistic. 
Yeah, we need to have you non-threatening. I'm sitting here going, he's a Federation commander. Like, how is he antagonistic or threatening? Come on now, stop this. And you, maybe, maybe that's the generation that we are. We just didn't see it. And nor should we have felt that way. All I know is when he shaved the head and cut down the goatee, I'm like, now that's a dude I want to ride with. Yeah, yeah. Hey, bald works for Star Trek captains. Just remember that. It does for all the men. <laughs> and 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 some of the Deltons. <laughs> I mean, he, when you get when you get chances for for Cisco to give these these over the top scenery chewing speeches where he's just blowing his steam, like when he he and Eddington or he and his former subordinate turned Maquis leader, Michael Eddington, <clears throat> when they start having their chess games in the three oh, episodes yeah. of season four and five, where it's just, I am fucking destroy you <laughs> kind of thing. And he goes like, it's true. Full nut job. Or when Eddington he, betrayed him. Uh, Cisco, you Cisco betrayed will, your uniform. Yeah, and he betrayed he betrayed Cisco. Okay, we need to talk about Eddington, and we need to talk about. Gosh, we'll have to figure out what else we want to talk about. But I do want to talk about the Eddington story arc in the next episode. That, that's a good one. You know what, Nog, when he went full bore at Nog, when he was trying to find out why he wanted to become a Starfleet officer, and he went like almost full-blown Avery Brooks at him. Yeah. And that, that scene just pulled Aaron Eisenberg Ugh. up to his level. No, no knock on Aaron Eisenberg, who was a very no. good actor and did Avery a great Brooks job. Avery Brooks made everyone better. Yeah, he just kind of... Avery went up, and he just pulled Aaron with him. And yes, they, he... Oh, it was... That. It was and, so and, good. I mean, what was it? Uh, Terry Farrell actually told Avery, you need to dial it back because I am way not at your level and I can't, I can't act as well as you can. <laughs> she literally said that. Like, I can't match your power level on this. <laughs> no, but Terry Farrell really did come a very long way and really became a powerhouse, you know, in her own right. Oh yeah. She, yeah. I mean, they all did. And you know what? More to discuss in DS9 Part 2. I will leave this with you, folks. It had the most diverse cast, at least at the time, as far as people of oh, different man. backgrounds. It had, it, of the actors, even. I mean, Jet Dax was technically bi. No, I'm just talking about the actors. Yeah. You have such a fantastic set of characters that have serious character development and interpersonal conflicts, flaws. Now, the later seasons of Next Gen, you'd actually start to see more of that in some of the characters, which I think flesh them out better. Yep. Um, when Picard started to just be a little bit more human, you know, when they would let Troy actually do her job, you know, 
when <laughs> Riker wouldn't bang the only female in the room. <laughs> or when they actually allowed Crusher to do anything. Really, but but Deep Space Nine started with that. And hell, yeah. they even started having a fairly decent recurring cast from the get-go. Nom, you know what they also did? Rom, uh, Garrick, they all had a couple of episodes. Dukat, they all had a, a multi-episode cast in the first season alone. Yeah. You know what they also did in Deep Space Nine? Which, you know, they had Riker be the kind of Kirk fill in for the you know the womanizer slash he's gonna get some right d space nine didn't have that d space nine actually had Dax preached well dax dax had a past but dax right. but they it, always but, hinted off lane you know off site like oh she dabbled with this or she right flirted uh, with that like yes but Deep Space Nine really promoted the idea of a steady and stable relationship. No yeah. one-offs. Well, they had the occasional, but for the most part, and that was mostly early on, too. Right, yeah. the occasional, if they did, it was one-off. I can't think of anything, It was, but it would have been early. But it really did promote steady, you know, healthy relationships in a marriage or, you know. Well, you start off having a widowed commanding officer. Right. From all what all you can see, they had a pretty good life together. They seemed to have mutual Oh, he worshipped her. He worshipped her. But then... And and, and looking back on it now, like, as a married man, it, 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 it hits me in the feels. You know? Seeing seeing that pain from him. Oh, in the very first episode, you see him not able to save his wife. Oh, yeah. You get the, to the, feel this pain and and anguish and yep. rage. Again, as a twelve year old, didn't understand that emotional depth. No. You know? But then you have a, a father son relationship. It's like the first healthy one in Star Trek. Really? Oh. And th- we're going to talk, we, sh- we need to talk about that in, in future episode, in a future episode, which I but, suggested. But Cisco, for the most part, was out there right. serial dating. I mean, Picard no. actually seemed to be, ha- had more one-off relationships than, than Cisco did. He had Vaj, and then he had that one... Neela Darren. Lieutenant. Neela? Neela Darren, I think that was her name. Um, uh, the science officer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and then and then he he kind of had a relationship with the woman who played um, who was in X Men with with him. Uh, Famica oh Jensen, God. Jean, Famica Jensen, yeah. But he didn't he didn't act on it. He was tempted, but uh, Picard. I, I would say that we saw two relationships for Picard out of seven seasons. We technically saw two relationships for Cisco out of seven seasons as well. Well, and let's not forget the whole underlying attraction with Beverly, though. True, but they were professional about it. <laughs> well, all good things seem to show that they got married at some point, but 
Oh, I, after he after she started reporting to him, probably. But needless to say, I mean, you're right that there was. Uh, I mean, yes, did Bashir try to date? Yeah, and they kind of gave but him he, like the he hard luck that Jordy has. They gave <laughs> he him failed Jordy's at it. Luck. Yeah, they gave him Jordy's luck. He was he was a hound. But he was an unsuccessful hound. Jordy was not a hound. <laughs> Jordy was. Just Jordy was not. No, no. Bashir was a hound, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jordy was. Or, uh, Bashir was like if Kirk got shut down all the time. Yes. Yeah. No. Or Jordy Riker. was a nice guy that finished last yeah. all the time. And, and goddamn. I... But I mean, O'Brien was married with a kid. Mm-hmm. Married with two kids. Yep. And he and Keiko had a good relationship, but they lived apart at times, and they argued at times. But there was but mutual respect. They supported respect. each other. Yeah, they were good friends. They were they were good friends. I, I, Deep Space Nine really did show how relationships are supposed to be fostered. Maybe not perfectly, but they no. gave great healthy examples. You know. Oh yeah. I mean, Cisco dated somebody, and when she was in prison, he wasn't dating anybody else. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> and then, and then they get married. And Cassidy comes back. She's like, "So I'm here. Hi, are we, you know, okay?" And he makes it abundantly clear they're okay. So yeah. <laughs> right away, he doesn't he doesn't hold it over her head or anything. You know, well, Kira had a couple of she had like three pretty serious relationships on Deep Space Nine, but they were serious relationships. They were, they weren't, yeah, you know, they weren't serial, no, the episodes, you know, no, but but yeah, I mean, over the course of seven years, she had three fairly substantial relationships. I mean, that that's logical, it's not a no, and the, the, and I mean, were, it, it looked fine. It was fine. Were, it for was, the most part, very good relationships for the most part. I mean, they were mostly built on respect. I mean, she definitely, I mean, you know, if, if you want to co- talk about Gul Dukat's obsession with her, bleh. but, <laughs> but oh. I mean. Oh, God, he was so gross. Oh, he was so good, though. It was a great, gross guy. We will have to talk about his merits as one of the top villains in Star Trek in the next episode, too. Though. Yeah. Because, folks, right. Deep Space Nine is not one you could do an entire one one to two-hour episode on. Deep Space no. Nine is the kind of show that really deserves in-depth. And now, it's yes, got deep if, in the title for a reason. If you go out into <laughs> YouTube and podcasts and other things... I'm sure you'll find a bunch of things extolling the virtues of Deep Space Nine. If you go watch the crowd-funded and absolutely fantastic documentary, What We Left Behind, you will see just how underrated it was at the time, but how popular it's become. It really was built for the show now, when you think about it, was perfect for streaming. Yeah, it really was is it and it's is. only on, it, and it's the only star trek that's available on netflix right now did you know that 
I did know that because that's how I watched last night's episode. <laughs> uh, not that I don't. My, Paramount Plus is fine, um, but occasionally, and I think for most Star Treks, like the old series, you can watch them without having the commercials. But damn, I, I've dude. decided. I've decided that I'm going to be buying all of these series digitally, mm. not all at once, because kids got to eat. But <laughs> <laughs> I will be doing this over time. But uh, mm. all right, I love I this think show. It's so I great. love this show so much. <laughs> and you will find out. Tune in next time, and you'll find out how much we really do love it. Yes. All right, everyone. That sounds like a wrap. So, on that note, you guys keep dreaming. We'll keep working. So long, everybody. Through the wormhole and see you on the high ground. You always get the good outros. <laughs> Those Sci-Fi Guys is an independent broadcast by Alpha Site Productions, produced by DT Cavman and P.S. McKay. Music courtesy of Kevin Cloud at incompetech.com. For more information on upcoming episodes, follow P.S. McKay on Twitter at P.S. McKay or go to thosesci-fi-guys.com for past episode information.